Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we are, Ephesians chapter 4. Like I said last week, we did three. We blazed through three in under an hour last week. I was impressed with myself, <laughs> let me tell you. And then tonight we got the typical two chapters. And uh, the reason we did three, blazed through three last week, was because I want next week us to just slow down and do just one chapter next week, chapter 6, the, the chapter about the spiritual armor of God and spiritual warfare. And I thought it would be worth our time since it is not echoed elsewhere in the New Testament that we take our time and slow down right there and just look at it for one week. So this is what we looked at last week. Beginning with Ephesians 1 through 3 is Paul really sets for us what your inheritance is as a Jesus follower, as a Christian, as someone who finds their identity and their salvation in Jesus. He lays out for us our inheritance, and it's magnificent. And Ephesians, in many ways, grabs the concept of the promised land for Israel, and it, te- it uses Jesus as the new inheritance for the church, as Israel has their promised land the church has jesus and we are inheritors of his glory and of who he is and ephesians really models itself in some ways off of the book of joshua and joshua is that old testament book where israel gets up to the edge of the promised land after being liberated from egypt and they are about to enter into the promised land and joshua chronicles their journeys into the promised land and joshua is their leader and um They go through a little bit of some battles to get the land, and then Joshua divides the land and has the tribes go out and seize it and take it and live in it and build your homes and your settlements and live there. And Ephesians uh, does the same thing. It has has warfare in this book, and it asks us to go and seize what God's given us. And the most striking similarity is the way that God tells Joshua... On the eve of their entering into the promised land, he tells Joshua, chapter 1, verse 3, Hey, look at all the land that is before you. Everywhere where your footsteps, I have already given to you and the people. Can you imagine you're entering into this new territory and it's, That is already mine, given to me by God. That is too. And everywhere they go, as far as they wanted to go, God had already given to them. And what we see in Ephesians 1 verse 3 is that same idea only being applied to Jesus. He says, Ephesians 1 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Not, you will be blessed by him when you get your act together or when you say the right prayers. Nope. Just like the land has already been given to Joshua and the people, these spiritual blessings have already been poured out upon us. So who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single one. There's not one that he's withheld. He said, they're all made available to my children. This is your land. And so we look at, at the very beginning of Ephesians is that he's, you can imagine Paul as if he's on a mountain like Moses on Mount Nebo looking at the promised land as far as I can see. There's Paul up on the mountain, Paul writing this book, this letter of Ephesians, and he's describing the lay of the land that he sees. This is your inheritance. And he he concludes in chapter 3 with this uh, prayer that you may know what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth 
I want you to know how broad and vast this inheritance is so that you don't stop exploring it. You don't stop inheriting it. Because Israel, at even the height of their kingdom under Solomon, possessed only a mere 10% of the promised land. Of everything God had available to them, if you only walk towards it and take it, it's yours. They settled for 10%. And I fear that so many of us are settling for way less than God's best for us. And we have no idea the fullness and the, the life that we can have and inherit in Christ. But we settle for far less than he has for us. So in uh, Ephesians 1, he gave us the lay of the land, if you will. This is what your inheritance looks like. And in chapter 2, he talked about how to enter into that land. And it is by blood. It is by the blood of Jesus that we get to enter into the land. As Israel left Egypt and got to the land through the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and the sacrifices in the temple or tabernacle along the way. And so we see that Jesus is our entrance into this land. And then we come to chapter 4. But now, as Paul gave them each time, blessings are the lay of the land, and uh, the blood is your entrance into the land. Each time he prayed for them sincerely, I want them to rise into these blessings and this inheritance that they have. I don't want them just to know about it. I don't want them to be stuck with their leaden feet saying, oh, woe is me. Life is so hard and walking like that. I want them to rise above this and, and, and to start walking into what God has given them. So that's, that's in a nutshell what was happening last week. What we now have is rise and walk. Last week was rise and inherit. This week is rise and walk. And now Paul's going to turn our attention to, all right, so I've shown you the land, the lay of the land. I've shown you how to get into it by the blood of Jesus. Uh, now let's, let's do something about this and let's walk through it. And let's, he's going to talk a lot about our behavior. And so a lot of Christians know these chapters. They're very practical, like do this and don't do that and all this stuff. And he's talking about our behavior because this is about how we settle the land. Once we get into it, this is how we settle it. And settling it's very important because we want to live in the inheritance of Jesus, not just dabble in it in and out, in and out, in and out, right? We want to live there, settle there, and build our lives there. So with me, read with me chapter 4, verse 1. And you're going to hear this whole se- It just pivots right here. I therefore, so in light of everything I told you about inheritance in Christ, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have seen the magnificent lay of the land, and you have been told how to enter into it. And I have told you that it is, bro- it is wide, and it is high, and it is deep, and it is long, and there is no limit to how far you can explore this thing. I have told you all that. Now, therefore, in light of this great, great inheritance we can receive, walk worthy of it. And so, through chapters 4 and 5, he's going to tell us how to walk. It's really cool that he tells us now, um, like, rise up to it and walk through it. Because this is what God does with Abraham. You remember in chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls Abraham to be his, uh, to be his vessel through whom a huge nation would be born. And through that nation, he would bless a world that has been cursed by the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. 
And so this, this, this nation, Israel, was to bring blessings to the world. And it, Abraham was promised that not only will you have descendants and um, they will become a great nation, not only will through them I bless the whole world, which you and I, if you're not Jewish, are great participants in that promise, but also, third, I'm going to give to them a land, a promised land. They're going to have an inheritance. And so Abraham, what does he do when he hears this call? He says, that's cool. I'm going to stay here in Babylon. Now, Abraham hears this call and he says, aye, aye, captain. And he gets up and he takes his family with him and they walk. They walk through the wilderness and they get to this land that God has promised them. And then when Abraham gets there, he doesn't just sit in one spot and say, this is a pretty nice land. Lord cracks open a Coke, sips it and says, now I can retire. He, he, he actually, you'll read in Genesis, he travels from spot to spot to spot to spot through this land. He's exploring what his ancestors are going to inherit. And there's that moment, you may remember, when he and his nephew Lot have so much abundance. God has so blessed them that they can't even share the same piece of property because their, their, their servants are fighting over property rights and things that they have to split up. And Abraham says, you get the first pick. So Lot takes his pick. And then Abraham's thinking, gosh, Lord, why did I give him the first pick? It's my land. You gave it to me. I should have the first pick. He's I'm adding that. He's probably imagining that and is wondering those things in his head. Because what happens is God comes to him and says, Abraham, I still have an inheritance for you. And you know what he tells him in Genesis 13, verse 17? God tells Abraham, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land. Just like Paul said in Ephesians, I want you to know the width and the length and the breadth and the height of this thing. He tells Abraham, I want you to rise and to walk through the length and the breadth of the land. Go and settle into this thing. And so this is what Paul's doing when he tells us, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. As Abraham was called, we too are called to an inheritance. And so this is our commission tonight is to walk through it. All right. So. I want to call up my wife and daughter for just a second because there's no better illustration of walking than a one-year-old. So, Evelyn is going to demonstrate walking for us. Come over here. (laughs) Did you know that you were so amazing? All right, so um, the bummer here is that she's actually become a much better walker literally in the last three days than when I thought of this illustration because she, she sometimes walks like Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and sometimes you're wondering what's up with her. But um, so she's actually walking much better. But see, there's this thing that you'll watch the cliff. There's this thing that you'll notice about babies, right? And it's that they don't necessarily walk in a straight line. And they often have their hands up like this. And she's kind of just wandering wherever her weight takes her. Like, I'm falling this way. I'm going to walk this way now. (laughs) There's no purpose. Anyways. Good job. Yeah, see, there's a little little stutters there. Good. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Evelyn. We'll give her a hand, huh? (laughs) 
she's like, she knows that's for her. Look at her. I have raised a monster. It's <laughs> okay, well, um, what I love there is, is when we learn to walk, there's no like, I got it down, right? We're not always starting balance. That's something that's learned and it's acquired. And now we're to the point where, um, you know, you walk without thinking. You don't really give much thought towards your walking. I guess when there's a certain point in life when you get old enough where you have to think a lot about how to walk because it's struggle. But, but for most of our life, it's second nature to walk, even to the point that I sometimes forget that, you know, I'm talking and walking all the time and I'm moving around and you guys... I don't think of it until you point it out. Like, it's just, you know, we, can, we just walk naturally. We can even talk when we walk. It's not that, it doesn't take up that much of our mind. But when we begin to walk, we, we have this problem with balance. And we begin to try to get this down and our muscles aren't strong. And we often need a hand. Like when we took Evelyn out to the village yesterday to show off her unicorn costume, uh, we had to hold her hand, right, in all those crowds and walk with her. And I mean, it was slow, painful process, progress, but that's how we walked with her, by holding her hand. And that's also how she learns, you know, confidence and she learns balance and all those things. And every now and then you let go and you let her go and she'll fall, sometimes on her face, sometimes on her butt. It's, but it, she's always okay, right? And I never watch her plump down which I was kind of hoping she would in front of you. <laughs> it's evil. I never watch her plop down, though, and say, Avon, come on, man. When are you going to get this down? And act so disappointed in her. It's kind of cute. And to watch her get up and do it again. Like, she doesn't care. Um, that's, that's how we learn to walk. And then it eventually becomes second nature. Well, I bring this up because we are, too, learning how to walk in a, in a new way, in sorts. You know, we've looked at this inheritance, and some of us have never realized everything that we have in God. And we kind of did the whole Harvest Crusade, or I came to Jesus thing at an altar call, and that's about it. You know, we go to church, and we kind of learn a thing or two, but we've never learned to actually walk into this inheritance God has for us. And this walking thing is new. And sometimes you're plopping down on your butt every now and then because you're messing up. And the behaviors Paul's going to prescribe in here, you're like, mm-hmm, I'm feeling really bad tonight. Um, but it's okay because God wants to take our hand tonight, and he wants to teach us how to walk and how to find our balance as we explore the inheritance that he gives to us. So we're going to see this theme walk throughout these chapters. Now, the other reason why I bring up the idea of balance is because that's literally what Paul is saying. If you get behind the English and see the Greek words that are here, he's literally talking about walking with balance. So that's right here in verse 1. When he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner axios. That's the word for worthy. In a manner worthy, it's axios. And axios was a word that was also applied to this image, um, where you would have a bar, and on each side of the bar are little plates, and you would put a one-pound weight here, right? The scale gets tipped over that way. And then you would start putting um, wheat on this scale, and you keep putting wheat on until it brought the one pound up even with the other pl- uh, plate, right? That's, that's um, 
a measuring scale, a balancing scale. And that's the idea of axios, is that it, it brings balance. And what Paul's saying by walking worthy is he's saying, I want you to walk in balance with these two things. So when I get enough wheat on the scale that it balances with the one pound weight, then I know, okay, the wheat is worth its weight, right? You've heard that phrase before, you're worth your weight in gold. Uh, the wheat is now worth its weight. It's worth the pound. And so you take it off and you know that it's worthy. That's the idea of the word worthy in the Greek. And so Paul's saying, I want you to walk balanced. I want you to walk worth your weight. So in other words, he said, I had explained to you this whole inheritance thing. <laughs> and that's really big. And it's really heavy. And you're like, oh my goodness. And he's saying, I want you to now walk in a way that you bring who you are and what you inherit in Jesus into proper balance. Now, we are not too good at this because the inheritance never lightens up. And it is massive. And it's wonderful blessing. We, however, are the youngins that are learning how to get in step with this inheritance. So sometimes we get it balanced, but often we get it out of balance and we mess up and we're thinking about ourselves and we're not thinking properly. And so that's what Paul's doing is he's inviting the Ephesians now to walk with balance you're going to start like Evelyn. And only if you saw her just a week ago. You know? uh, you're going to start like Evelyn, needing a hand in want of better balance. But you're going to get it the more we walk to the point that walking will become second nature. Some of us struggle with keeping our cool in pressure situations and we're known for losing our temper. For you... That's out of balance, and you're learning to balance your anger and your temper. Others of us had that down a while ago, and it's second nature for you to learn how to just keep your cool and not react. You don't have to think about it too much. And for all of us, we're at different levels in different areas. And so you, you understand that in some places, oh, that's second nature for me when Paul says that. But other areas are like, hmm, I need a hand there. And so that's what we're going to see as we go through. So here's the question. Uh, how do we walk balanced? That's the question. And that's what Paul's going to address. What does walking balanced, what does walking in this inheritance look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looked like for Israel. As they were about to inherit the promised land, uh, this is while they're in the wilderness on their way, God told them over and over, and this is just one of many verses, he told them over and over, when you get there, this is how to inhabit the land. This is how to walk in balance. Something like this. Exodus 34, 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. So when you get to your land, there's going to be all these other people there that are pagans. They don't worship one God. They worship a multiplicity of gods. And in their worship, sexual practices are common. The family uh, morals are very loose. And just a lot of the way that they live is not the way God wanted Israel to live. So when you get there, don't make friendships with them. So verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And so he goes on and basically says, then they're going to, if you get too cozy, then we invite you to a sacrifice ritual for their God. And then you're going to marry one of their daughters. And then the clans are going to be together. And basically the corrupt culture I'm sending you into that land to change is going to corrupt you. And you're going to lose out on your inheritance. 
So when Israel goes into the promised land, when they get their inheritance, there's a certain way they're to walk. So that's what Paul's doing for us. So let's go now into these walking uh, steps. He's got five steps for us. So number one, walk in unity. So I urge you, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord to walk in a manner worthy or to walk in balance of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So first, walk in unity. Verse four, there is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given. Stop there. (laughs) So that's his call to unity. And before we start to emphasize on how we're different, he wants to emphasize how they're all the same. There's seven times that he says you have one. And it's right there in verse 4 through 5 and 6. You have one, 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 one. One faith, one baptism, one spirit, and so forth. And I like that number 7. It's as if Paul's just calling us into a new God creating a new human being act. You know, it's a sevenfold. There's this oneness. And that's what Paul brings their attention to. So there's, there's great unity. But... This is not communism. It's not what we're being called to in unity. We're going to have a lot of differences. And diversity is very important in this unity. If we have unity without diversity, we're communists. If we have diversity without unity, we're running around as individualists. And we don't have any camaraderie whatsoever. So Paul's going to use unity with diversity. And so now he's going to, in verse 7, talk about the diversity that we have. So verse 7 says... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, this is quoting from Psalm chapter 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, Paul's going to comment on that psalm. In saying, verse 9, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Or, the New King James, into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And you're at this point going up, down, up, down, I don't get it. (laughs) So, Psalm 68 is this beautiful psalm about God who goes before Israel and triumphs over their enemies. And then he ascends to a mountain and then takes residence there. And it is believed through Jewish commentaries on their own texts that this is him defeating their armies and then ascending up to the temple where he now becomes king because all the enemies are subdued. And so all the nations are now supposed to come to God. Now, here's what happens in antiquity when a king subdued his enemies and took the throne and was the sole ruler it was upon the other people to come and prove their loyalty to the new king by bringing the king gifts right that's how you oh my goodness pastor mike is the king okay so uh immediately i want to be on his good side so here have my ipad so that's what you would do and you get on the king's good side if you didn't come bring a gift he makes note of it and he knows Now, what's ironic in this passage, and this is Paul's point, is that Jesus is the one he's applying that old psalm to. Jesus has conquered our enemies and ascended onto the throne. And instead of us coming to him and proving our loyalty, Jesus gave us gifts in his triumph. 
totally backwards. And so he's showing the grace of our God and that he's not demanding gifts from us. He's giving gifts to us. And so that's what he's saying there. Now, there's a little bit, and I'm sure someone's wondering, so I have to cover this or I'll get 100 emails tomorrow. But um, I never do get that. Um, it says, he who, in verse 9, when it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth or to the lower parts of the earth? Um, people have debated quite furiously about what that means. What are the lower regions? What are the lower parts? So some say that he descended, and the New King James would lead you to believe this, uh, to hell, the lower parts of the earth. So you've got the earth, what are the lower parts? Well, that would be Hades. And that Jesus, upon his death on the cross, went to Hades and freed the captives, right? Let them go. And those that believed in God, he took to heaven with him. Uh, that's one view. A second view would be uh, the way the ESV translates it and leads you to believe is that he descended into the lower, the lower e- <laughs> excuse me he descended into the lower regions comma the earth in other words the lower regions are the earth in compared to heaven where he left earth is the lower region that he went down into so it would be referring to the incarnation to christmas um, the third and rather newer view, which is actually very appealing, but not exactly, um, the text isn't very weighty and it's evidence for this, is that the descension it's talking about to the, to the earth is the gifts of the Holy Spirit upon Pentecost. Jesus ascended and promised that when I ascend, the Holy Spirit will descend. And the Holy Spirit did descend. And Paul's about to talk about these different gifts that people are given by God. And well, those gifts come from the Holy Spirit. So that's another compelling um, one for you. So um, you've got three options, and I really can care less which one you choose to believe. I just think that Jesus has ascended, and that's the bottom line. So verse 11, he continues what has come out of this ascension. Well, continuing on with this diversity, we see, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So five offices or five people You'll notice that all of them have one thing in common. They're leaders, one. Second, they're also teachers of some sort. So these are five types of leaders. Um, they all go out and speak the word of God, and they're giving the church some sort of shape, some sort of structure, some sort of vision, and they're leading it. So in Paul's passage here, leadership in the church and teachers of the word are considered, in his theology, gifts from God. So you can thank me later. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but indeed, these are gifts given to the church for a certain purpose. And what we're going towards is walking in unity. So these leaders are given to us for unity's sake. Um, that's what he's going to now describe. So he gave us these leaders, verse 12, for this purpose. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the leaders are given to us to help us rise up, grow up into the matureness, the vision of being the body of Jesus, that maturity, and not like children that are out of balance and kind of going wherever their weight's taking them or whoever's saying what and doing our thing. The leaders are say, no, 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 that's a little childish. Come back here. Let's grow up in Christ. 
So the image of a body um, leads us to uh, Paul saying, look, the church is the newest thing. Okay, there was originally Adam, but Adam brought the curse upon the world through his rebellion. He lost his inheritance, Garden of Eden. Then there was Abraham, the next Adam, the next man that God uh, chose and gave a land to. And instead of Eden, he gave Abraham the promised land. And they were to go and inherit that and bring blessing to the world. But through their fall, their rebellion against God, like Adam, he lost Eden. Israel lost the promised land. And so now we have a third try, uh, 3.0, right? Another reboot. Um, Now we have the church, and Paul sees the church as the newest humanity yet, the newest Adam yet, led by Jesus. And that this Adam is inheriting its land, and this one is not going to fail because Jesus has ensured that his people will always be with him through his death on the cross. So that's that's his sight here, and you're going to see a little bit more of this to come. Now, uh, so that's the maturity that he's leading us to. So... We see that there is unity. We have one, 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 one. There's diversity. He gave us these different leaders and different gifts. And then um, third, we see that the purpose of these gifts, starting in verse 13, is for maturity. So unity, diversity, maturity. And to walk in unity means that we're growing up into maturity. That's, that's the idea. It's, it's much like an orchestra. I, I think that if Paul was writing today, maybe he would have used an orchestra illustration. If I can dare, just suggest that. Uh, an orchestra really fits the way a body was talked about in those days. Um, an orchestra would probably match us. And the fact that you have lots of diversity in an orchestra. You have um, the trombones over there, which one of the conductor's famous rules, I don't remember the guy's name, he says, uh, his like, fourth commandment, he had 10 of them. Never look at the trombone players. It only encourages them. <laughs> so you got them, and everyone's like, he has a place, but a very small place. <laughs> and you have the violins, which very much so dominate. You have the keys, you have the drums, and you have the wind instruments. And all these things, are, they're very diverse when you hear them individually. But under the proper music, they bring a lot of unity. They sound good together. And so uh, you can imagine that there's a story to this orchestra in which God is the composer of this music. He made everything and he made a song that's gorgeous and it was meant to glorify him forever. And the creation being humans and everything in creation were the orchestra that he created to play this piece of music. But one of the members of the orchestra, the humans, Adam, uh, decided to play off the music a little bit. And Adam did his own thing. I don't want to play that music. I want to play my music. And while the rest of the orchestra is going, he's out there fiddling on B while everybody else is in A, and it sounds atrocious. Disunity was brought into the orchestra. And it went on that way for a long time. But then God said, hmm, if I give him a conductor, somebody with a little baton to, to, to follow, it'll bring unity again. So he sends Jesus as the conductor, and he brings everyone to attention. And, and many humans are still following Adam's music, but some have said, wait a minute, this one's more beautiful. And they follow the baton of the conductor, the composer's son, and they're bringing, he's bringing unity back to the music. And the church, well, the church is where we hear that unity. The church is where we hear that original piece of music being played. Oh, yes, imperfectly. We're still learning our instruments. But it is being played under the conductor who's giving us the composer's original piece. And it sounds magnificent. And it wouldn't sound the same if we're all on the same note on the same instrument. 
But it's different instruments playing different notes that are supposed to go together that brings harmony and depth. That's what's happening in the church. And that's where we have the unity and diversity. And as soon as those two can come together, now we have maturity. A word of caution. Maturity does not mean more disunity. Maturity means more unity. And sometimes we can think we're getting mature and like we know everything and we can therefore start, you know, blaspheming other parts of the church. And that only brings disunity, but we do it thinking we're more mature. And I don't know. I look at the scriptures and I think maturity should be bringing more unity, not less unity. And so we need to, we need to make note that Paul is saying, walk in unity. This is part of your balance. Number two, walk in your new humanity. That's in, I don't know what else to call it, but it fits. New humanity, verse 17. For this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, real quick, the Gentiles are simply the non-Jews in the Bible. So that's everybody in the world. Everybody in the Roman Empire who's not a Jew, that's a Gentile. So... The difference is that the Jews were raised with the Torah, the word of God. They were raised memorizing it. They were raised worshiping one God. They were raised with a strict moral code. So they were very clean people, very pure people. They looked upon the Gentiles very suspiciously and very appalled at their lifestyle and their manner of vulgar living and paganism and and loose morals. And so there's this huge difference. And so Paul is reminding the church, who's not all Jews, some of them are Gentiles, but he's reminding them now that you are being brought into a new manner of living and walking into your inheritance remember the gentiles these pagans that have loose moral standards look at them i don't want you to live like them but you can imagine the gentiles in the church going but that's normal and we have gentiles today we don't call them that but it's our standard accepted conventional culture of america and you know one of those standards is uh Young people don't have to get married, they, but they can live together. As long as they're serious about each other, they can copulate, you know, and live together. And, like, that's one of the norms in my generation. That's normal. Um, but Paul would say, well, that's what a Gentile does, not what the new humanity does. The new humanity is being brought under a certain way of walking and living. And so um, that's... And that's where we can say, who are the Gentiles in our midst? And Paul's saying very simply, don't walk according to your conventional culture. Think through, is the conventional culture according to God or not? So, regarding these Gentiles, he gives us their nature. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Wow. They're darkened, they're alienated, they're ignorant, they're hard and a fifth, they become callous or numb and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So because of their darkness, because of their hardness, because of their callousness or their numbness, they're dead. And they simply want to feel alive. So what do dead people do to feel alive? Well, they immerse themselves in all kinds of sin and pleasure just to feel something. And that's what Paul is saying that they're doing. But, um, verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. So, assuming, verse 21, that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to do this, put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and which is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to verse 24 put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I love this. Put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self. This is, this is totally a picture of how the church, you'd think, <laughs> your pastors that we don't do it this way anymore, but once upon a time, the church practiced um, baptism like this. The new convert would take his clothes off because that's his old self. He would walk into the water, be cleansed, be renewed, and he'd come out of the water, and there the church would have new white robes for them and put them on them to signify your old life you took off right there. You've been cleansed in the water, and now you're given new garments, a new life. And that's, that's really, without saying the word baptism, that's the exact image that Paul's conjuring up here for us. And the point is, look, you're a new humanity We don't live under Adam's rules anymore. We now live under Jesus' rules. And because of the inheritance we have, we have a new way of behaving, a new way of walking. So, what does this new humanity look like? Well, in verse 25 to 31, he gives us, uh, 32, he gives us five distinct qualities in which I am, just since we don't want to harp too long on one little area, I'm just going to kind of go through these real quick. You need to, like, think on these, you know, like, read them in your own time. It's a good thing to do. So in verse 25, this is what this new humanity looks like, the new self. And notice, it is not like the Gentiles who feel dead and just want to feel something, so they take people and they take things and give for themselves. This is very different. This is picturing someone who's life-giving and not self-centered. So 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we speak the truth, not lies. 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So be in control of your emotions. Control your emotions. Emotions are not sin. It is not a sin to be afraid. It is not a sin to be angry. But it's how the emotion causes you to act that can become a sin. So Paul says, be angry. That's fine. That's not a problem. But don't sin when you're angry. Be in control of your emotions. Don't let them control you. Uh, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the new humanity works hard and is willing to be generous with the benefits of their hard work. 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion, and that it may give grace to those who hear. So we learn this new language, and sometimes it's hard. We, we stumble on our words a little bit, but we're, our language is supposed to be gracious and edifying and building up. That's the language we're trying to learn. Um, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What a great verse. And as a pastor said this morning, that should be a plaque in every single church. I don't know if that's a bad idea. I would love all of you to speak to me this way. And to act this way, it's saying that the new humanity forgives. Because God forgave us. And so we're kind to one another and we're patient 
We're dealing, we're willing to bear with one another, as he said in four, verse two, bearing with one another. So now we come to the third walk, the third step in walking in balance. So we've seen walk in unity, walk out the new humanity, not like the Gentiles. And the third walk in love, verse one of chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, how do you imitate God? It's hard to do. He did miracles. What am I supposed to do about that? He created the world. What am I supposed to do about that? Well, Paul brings it to much more practical terms in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is how we can imitate God and walk in love. We are sacrificial. We're willing to lay down our rights, our time, our, um, our needs, our lives for the sakes of others. That's how we imitate God. So, yes, God was all powerful, but probably his greatest miracle yet was coming to earth to be human to die for us. That's what we can imitate. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, verse 3. It's quite a contrast from that kind of love you just talked about to this kind of love. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. So, like, let not even these things... Don't let them be mentioned among you, let alone be practiced among you. Let let this kind of stuff not even be close to you. So, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this. This is sure, he says, you may be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. (laughs) So this great inheritance he's been describing to us, none of that is yours if you don't walk in love. Oh, man. That's don't walk in the Gentiles version of love, which is basically lust and grab, grab, grab and give, give, give to me. Be imitators of God's love of giving out of sacrifice. That is how you walk in your inheritance, lest you are in danger of not inheriting it. So let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you as Adam and Eve were deceived. Don't be deceived. Now, walk number four, five, verse seven, walk in light. Therefore, and it really partners with love. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Who are we to become partners with? God, imitate God and love like he does by sacrifice. So do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's walking in light. And this is what Paul wants. Look, you were once darkness. Now you are light. Walk in light because this is the fruit of the light. You see this pattern? He talks about darkness. Light, fruit. 
And what Paul's doing is he's saying, you guys are inheriting new creation stuff. You're like the new Adam, the new humanity. There was darkness at the beginning of Genesis, but God spoke light into it. And with the light, he also filled the earth with all kinds of fruit and told his creatures to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And so Paul here is reminding them, hey, this is what Christianity is, is they are the new humans inheriting this new inheritance, this new heaven and earth that God has in store for us. So remember where you were. You were like the earth at one time in which God came and spoke light into it. And now you're being fruitful and you're full of life rather than curse. You're full of blessing. That's He's calling them now to walk in light, walk like these people. Now, walking in light means that there's nothing vague about us. Like, well, I don't know. Is this, is this kind of stuff okay with the new humanity, with the church, with the Jesus people? I don't know. I'm not really sure what they're about. That should be very clear what they're about, he says, because you're walking in light. There's nothing to hide. We're real with each other. Um, and it goes on in verse 11 that we're not to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what your light does. Is It says, hey, you're darkness. <laughs> what light does as it shines into darkness darkness doesn't shine into light light shines into darkness it's, it's on the outward expanding movement it's invading so verse 12 for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret and yet sometimes in the church we have these conversations Okay, so for 13, but when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So your entrance into the light is that Christ awakens you. He resurrects you. you. You rise. Like chapter 2 said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, because of the great love in which he loved us, by grace you've been saved, raised us up with him to be seated with Jesus. Not just raised us with Jesus, but seated us with Jesus. The right hand of God. That's what we have been risen to. And he's saying here, you can now walk in this fourth step through Jesus who rises us up. And now fifth the fifth step, the fifth walk, is in verse 15, 515. It's to walk wise. So in some we have walk in unity, walk in the new humanity, walk in love, walk in light, and now walk in wisdom. 515 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So to walk wise is to have insight into the will of the Lord and to not waste time, but to start walking in the will of the Lord. That's wisdom, understanding God's purposes and then walking in those. That's how he's defining wisdom here for us. So walk in wisdom that understands the will of the Lord and do not. This includes not getting drunk with wine for that is debauchery that is Gentile-ish, but be filled with the spirit. So. If I want to know the will of the Lord and I want to walk in wisdom, the way that some pagans would do this to know the will of their God was to get drunk. And through becoming drunk, the spirit of the God is what made them who they are when they're drunk. So through drunkenness, I'm getting in touch with the deity and I can now discern mm, the wisdom and the will of my deity. And that's often how they would get in touch with the divine. And Paul's saying, well, uh, that's not quite the way it works in Christianity. 
We want to discern the will of God, but not through drunkenness. Drunkenness is not good. This is when you lose control of yourself. And I'm asking you to walk in balance, not, you know, how you can walk. (laughs) Not like that, but to walk in balance and to walk sober and to walk ready to inherit your land. Because you're going to lose it if you don't. So he encourages us to instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we understand now what to be filled with the Holy Spirit means in contrast to being filled with wine. It is as being full of wine makes me drunk and that controls me. The alcohol content in my blood controls what I say and how I act. The Spirit of God is to make us drunk in a sense. He is to control what we say and how we act. That's the idea. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the term is unfortunate because we talk about, let's be full of the Spirit. And I always, as a kid, until I went to England and heard this really good teacher say something, I always had this image of a cup. And it's empty. And you know, put the Holy Spirit in me. It's like somehow like there's more Spirit, there's less Spirit. I'm getting empty. More Spirit, less Spirit. But that's not what it means To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with air as the sail of a ship is filled with air. A sail that is flat and empty can't take the ship anywhere. But as soon as a sail is filled with air, it moves the ship powerfully. And that's what it means to be full of the Spirit. As the wind controls and empowers a ship, the Spirit controls and empowers me. That's what we're going for when we talk about being full of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul's asking him to do. That's wisdom. That's how we get in touch with the will of God, being full of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know you're full of the Holy Spirit when verses 19 to the end of this section here happen. It says, you begin addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So we know Pastor Mike's full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So thanksgiving, singing, and 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, submitting to one another. That is being part of being full of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you, I teach some classes, right, at the Lake Carroll Christian School. And um, when they don't submit to me, I'm certain they're not full of the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking they're full of something else. <laughs> and I think I've complained to a couple people this week about that. <laughs> I, I tell you, one day they love Jesus, they're interested in everything I'm saying. The next day, I don't know what possessed them overnight. They are a different crowd, you know? And yeah, submitting to your authorities and to one another and to the church, this is part of being full of the Holy Spirit. And then he carries this idea of submission down to a lengthy description about marriage in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. So that's how he launches. So you see the connection. He, when he talks about marriage, he's still talking about walking in wisdom. Because the wise person understands how to handle his wife. The wise woman knows how, to, knows how to handle her husband. And I'm not sure who has it harder. I'm biased, so I think I do. But maybe Brittany does. <laughs> so um, that's wisdom, right? Is learning how to manage our relationships and being filled with the Spirit and being in submission to our relationships. But here's what I want to say about the ugly word submission. It's kind of got foreboding dark clouds over in our day and age. Submit. You know? Submit literally just means submission, to come underneath one's mission or to partner with a mission. That's submission. And we have a mission in marriage. And all it means is, wives, 
Join in the mission. Husbands, join in the mission. Come together to serve the greater mission. That's submission. And that's what Paul says when he tells us to submit to each other. We're all accomplishing a mission. And the mission of marriage is to model the gospel. That's the mission of marriage, is to model the gospel of Jesus. Now, as, as Jesus was the incarnation of God on earth, right? God in human form on earth. Marriage is the incarnation of the gospel message. You know, the words and the good news of what Jesus has done takes on flesh and blood through man and woman coming together. Part of what Paul said is happening in Jesus is in 1 verse 10. He said that all things in heaven and earth are coming together in him. So the great divide, or C.S. Lewis uses the great divorce, is being reunited. And the Jews and Gentiles, human-wise, Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. The Jews didn't like the Gentiles, and the Gentiles thought the Jews are weird. But in chapter 2, verse 15, we saw that Jesus is bringing these two entities together to form one new humanity called the church. And see what God is up to in his gospel. Even himself and man are being reunited. There's reunification everywhere. There's unity everywhere. And marriage is about two completely different families coming together as one. And this is to be the flesh and blood of the gospel on our earth. That's the mission we are bringing ourselves underneath. That's why we submit to one another. It's because this is the mission we are trying to accomplish together. The gospel just in our loving each other as husband and wife. I mean, a a properly done marriage doesn't even need to say, Jesus loves you. It is saying it in their life. We don't understand the power of that because we don't see it. They say uh, 50% of marriages are failing. And by the time uh, the, the generations that are coming up and getting married are going through their marriages, or maybe should I say attempts, <laughs> uh, the rate is going to get much higher, much higher. And we're not on a good pace, you know? And that's why we don't see the power of a bunch of married people loving each other faithfully like Jesus loves the church. But the power of it is there for those that are willing to do it. Um, so let's, let's real quick go through this passage before I just talk about it and move on. So real quick. Uh, so how do we model the gospel? Paul's going to give two simple instructions is that wives are to model. Well, it's the same way. It's self-sacrificial love, right? Imitate God. How? By, um, by, um, uh, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we're to give ourselves up for each other. That's the model. Now, wives are to give up themselves sacrificially through surrender to the husband. And the husband is to give himself up sacrificially in service to the wife. That's what we're going to see. So both are sacrificing. 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So there you have the surrender. The wife is to submit to everything in her husband. So as Jesus self-sacrificially surrendered to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't, I don't want to, but nonetheless, your will be done, not mine. So wives are to mimic the gospel and how Jesus submitted to his Father. Now husbands self-sacrificially serve your wives. 25. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's easy to stop at husbands love your wives. Oh my goodness, that 
that explanation of what love means is killing all of us. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This isn't emotional. I love her. She's cute. I don't know what more she wants. I turn the heater on when I get up. I make coffee. Um, That's not really costing you anything. Except your utility bill, I guess. Self-sacrificially loving, serving like Jesus for the church. Wow. And the culture's all, oh, you're men telling these wives in the church to submit, so mean. Like, no. Paul telling the men to give up their lives for their wives, that's mean. <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> so um, we have here, though, the beautiful picture of Jesus surrendering to the Father, women to the man, and Jesus dying for humanity, man for the woman. This is a horribly hard but beautiful picture of self-sacrifice. And that's how we come under the mission of marriage, which is to model the gospel to the world. So the husband's he, he keeps going and it says that, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husband's, should love their wives as their own bodies. So that's talking about the oneness that, you know, your wife's body, men, is your body. And you're to take care of it the way you take care of your body. So he who loves his wife loves himself. It's working out in your favor. So for whoever hated his own flesh, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So this whole inheritance that Paul's been saying that the church receives in Jesus and everything he's done to make it happen for the church, Paul has just ever so climatically set up the men for failure or for a much higher calling and saying, yeah, so everything Jesus has done for us that you've heard me talk about and make you marvel at about the breadth and the depth and the height and the width, men, that is the way that you are to cherish and nourish your wife. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. So that's why he keeps going on towards the men. He's like, they have a lot of work to do. Because we are members of his body. So therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Another citation or reference or allusion to creation. Again, you've seen a couple of these spotted here and there. Paul has the idea of a new work happening. Uh, verse 20, verse 32, the mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in closing, if you thought I hammered the men too long, remember wives, <laughs> remember to sacrifice in surrender to your husband as Jesus did to the father. Now could say a lot more, but there's not space for that tonight. So that's the walk. That's the balance. Those are the five walks. That's how to walk and balance. Um, so we talked about learning how to balance. We need to be patient with one another and with ourselves. You're not going to get all this. There's somewhere, one of these walks, you're stumbling. You're falling on your rump every time. You need a hand. You need a helper. Um, this is what I think Paul would want us to know tonight. Is as you learn to walk in balance... Don't grab the Gentile's hand. Do not walk as the Gentiles walk. And he explained to us how they walk. That's not the hand we're looking for balance from. Instead, well, Israel, 
Israel tried that, didn't they? Remember the passage I read from Exodus right in the beginning? Uh, how God said, when you get into your inheritance, don't hold hands, my wording here, don't hold hands with the nations there because they will be a stumbling block to you. Instead, you're to remove their godless culture and establish my culture there. Well, um, when Israel went into the promised land, at first it sounded like a good idea, but then they realized how hard it is to walk God's way, and they began to grope for the Gentiles' hands. And you know what ended up happening? They got kicked out of their inheritance. And this is what we read. I'll read it to you. 2 Kings 17, verse 7. 2 Kings 17, 7 says, The exile occurred... The, the removal from their land occurred because the people of Israel walked in the customs of the nations. They deliberately, as Mufasa says, you deliberately disobeyed me. That's what they did. They held the Gentiles' hand to stabilize themselves. So tonight, hold God's hand. He's not angry that you keep letting go and falling. He's still there with you. And he's smiling, saying, oh, you're doing so much better. In fact, I wonder how many times he looks at us and say, you walked so much better in this last week. If only everyone could have seen how much you fell last week. This week, you're walking much better. How he must look at us like that. And, and he cherishes that we will hold his hand. He's not saying, come on, get your act together. God's okay moving slow. We've been waiting thousands of years for him. He can wait a little longer. You know, he wants us moving. He's willing to move at our pace. Say, okay, I've got your hand. And just in case you're doubting that this is even in Paul's mind, look at how many times he tells you to imitate God. Or another is to hold his hand, to cling tightly. 4.13 says that uh, we are all to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is where we're growing up to be. And what we're growing up to be is the stature of Christ. He's the standard. He's the stature. That's what we're moving towards. He's holding our hand to get us there. In 4 verse 20, he says, but that, don't walk in the way of the Gentiles, right? But that is not the way that you learned Christ. There's a way you learned Christ. I want you to walk in the way that you learned Christ. And 5, 1 and 2 tells us how we learned Christ. Be imitators of God and, and walk in love as Christ gave himself up. That's how you're to imitate him. Take his hand. He's going to help you do these things. 5, verse 10. By the way, this is in each section of walk. He gives us an ex, a very clear imitate him. 5, verse 10 in the walk in, love, in light. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Hold his hand. Discern what's pleasing to him. And then 5.17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk in wisdom. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Over and over, Paul has this image of, yes, walk into your inheritance, but don't, oh, I made two steps in and fall down and say, that's cool. I'll play with the building blocks now. Keep walking because you have a hand right there. And he's saying, come on, I will show you how to walk being imitators of me. And okay, you're going to hold the hand for a while, but it's okay. I promise it becomes second nature. You will be able to walk. And then you'll be the one helping others and coaching them in their way. It's possible, people. We just can't be hard on ourselves. We can't reject the hand of the Lord and take instead the easier hand of the Gentiles. 
And we will eventually make our walk, these things Paul said, to become second nature. And that's when you know, oh, I am settling into my inheritance. I am building into the land, and I am here to stay. I'm not at threat about losing my inheritance or something, which I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. That's another discussion. But um, Paul does say that there are certain people that have no inheritance. And we don't have to wonder or worry, but we know where we live because we're walking in the land as Abraham rose and walked through the land. So let's take our father's hand tonight.